Uh, I did not know that Jimmy was going to be doing the prayer for Christ Church in the world, and so um, I prepared a statement about the things that went on this week. And when uh, Jimmy and I collaborated on Friday about the service, I said, oh, I wrote something too. And, and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to say something. And I said, okay, well, why don't you just say something? And he said, no, I want you to say, say yours too. And so before we look at God's word, I just wanted to say this. And I'm going to read this. I was disturbed by so many images from the story of our nation's Capitol building Wednesday. But as a pastor, none disturbed me more than those connecting Christian symbolism with the insurrection. Images of men carrying crosses, men holding large crosses with Trump one, signs attached, a Jesus saves sign, and a sign that read, God, guns, and guts made America. Let's keep all three. Linking Christian faith exclusive, exclusively to one party or bending Christian symbolism with American patriotism, slapping Jesus onto your political agenda or political movement is Christian nationalism. So for clarity, I like to say Christian nationalism is not Christian. It's heresy. It's a cancerous poison. It's an offense to the gospel. It is anti-Christ. It is opposed to the kingdom of God. Its blurred lines often provide cover for white supremacy, racism, sexism, xenophobia, and prejudice. I will also say that it has no place in God's church and should be denounced in all its forms. And when we find it here, or we find it has slipped into our own hearts, let us be the first to openly repent and be humbly teachable. Thank you. Look at God's word together now. We're continuing our series, Learning to Love God's Word. And last week, Jimmy taught on 1 Timothy. And so now we're going to look at 2 Timothy, where Paul is in jail. He has been deemed a criminal, which in that culture was just unbelievably shameful. And he's been sentenced to, to be crucified, executed. And a lot of the people in this church in Ephesus, where Timothy is, were very ashamed of Paul and of Paul's message. And so they started to leave. They started to leave the church. And then some of them started to teach that the resurrection had already happened. And so, I mean, it's just this this big, disheveled, scandalous situation, right? And this letter is a kind of a personal goodbye to Timothy from Paul, but it's also his kind of final charge to Timothy. And so this is the book of Timothy, and Sam's going to come and read for us now uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Thanks, Sam. The scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. 
Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to be with us this morning through prayer. Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you now and we ask that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be glorifying to you and would inspire us to love you more and to love others more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the strongest women in our entire history is a woman named Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells. She was born in 1867, born into slavery in Mississippi, and um, she lived there as a, as a slave for 12 years. You can imagine the uh, abuse and racism that she would have had to endure as uh, a black little girl. Uh, when she was 12, the Emancipation Proclamation happened, and so she was then freed to go to school, and so she could go to a black school and, and have uh, an education, and she started to do that. However, at age 16, both of her parents got yellow fever and died, leaving Ida to raise the rest of her family herself as a young girl. I mean, 16. 16, you're a black young woman facing racism, assault, and just terrible conditions in school and in working. And so what Ida did is that she moved to Tennessee where she had better pay as a, a teacher and she was able to teach in this black school. But one of the things that she started to do was to speak out. And she started to become an activist. An activist speaking out against inequality and racism and sexism and violence. And she constantly, because of this, would have her life threatened. She would constantly be opposed. She would constantly be abused. Now you hear that about this woman and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, and I'm asking, can you imagine how hard her life must have been as a black woman in the 1800s in our country? I'm not convinced that any one of us could even really understand. It's that bad. And I don't think we can understand because we live in a culture of comfort. We live in a culture that prioritizes comfort, to, that says get all of the power and the money and the control that you can, you can so that you can shape your life with the most comfort. And sadly, that kind of bleeds over into our Christianity, to where we think 
Jesus and the gospel are supposed to make me comfortable. And kind of looks like this, where, you know, you say, you know, you need to forgive your coworker. I'm not going to forgive my coworker. Do you know how mean she is to me? No. Uh, you need to give um, a, a tithe to God. Like, you think I'm going to give 10% or more of my money? That's my money. I'm going to do what I want. Easy there, fella. Or, you know, I want you to have these conversations with your family or coworker about Jesus. Well, that's awkward. I'm out. Some of us don't feel that way. Some of us are like, no, I want to be strong. It's just sometimes I get scared. I get scared. I get afraid of what other people might think. I get afraid of failing. I get afraid of looking foolish. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, all right, preacher boy. If you're going to tell me I need to be strong and endure suffering, you need to read verse 1 again because it was talking to Timothy, not us. And I would say, good job reading your Bible. Way to go. You're right. Verse 1, you then, my son, he tells him, be strong. Now, here's where I'm going to get you, though. This is a sermon not just on chapter 2. This is a sermon on the whole book. So I get to pick the whole book and all of the words. And Paul uses the singular word, you, through chapters 1 through 4. And then at the end of 4, he changes and addresses y'all. And so it brings all of the, that church and Timothy into application and meaning. This is to you too. And it brings all of us into this as well. So the word of God is saying to us, be strong by embracing suffering. All right, preacher boy, did you just say embrace suffering? I would say, yes, I said embrace suffering. And stop calling me preacher boy. <laughs> There's only one person who can do that, and he's not here. Embrace suffering. And Paul is saying embrace suffering because he's saying, I have specific behaviors that I want you to have, specific goals, and specific things I want you to do. Okay, first is be strong by embracing suffering as a teacher. You see this in verse 2. It says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, that word people, in the ESV it's men, and here it's people in the NIV. So which one is it? Well, I would say it's both. He, Paul is saying, Timothy, find these men who are going to be qualified to teach, men who, um, who have been authorized by the church, who have been ordained in, by the church to be up front preaching and teaching. But then, as you guys know, we need more teachers than just 
the guys up here. We need teachers all throughout the church, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're old, whether you're young. We all need to have teachers. And when Paul says, you know, find these reliable people, he's saying find people who are competent in explaining the gospel. Find people who have aptitude to teach the gospel. And there are two character qualifications when he says uh, find people who are qualified to teach others. The two, cl- the two character qualifications would be a sound faith, like you understand the gospel, and that you're loyal. Remember, so many people were leaving the church. But he's saying, look, I want them to remain loyal to, to Christ loyal to Paul's message, and loyal to Timothy, and understanding that suffering is actually part of the Christian life. It is. And so, for us, we must be strong by teaching the gospel. And you might say, I'm not a teacher. And I would say, yeah, actually you are. You might teach your children. You might teach your spouse. You might teach your friends. You might teach one-on-one, you might teach in a small group. You're all teachers. And you might not explicitly be the teacher with, you know, explicitly explaining the gospel to somebody, but you are always implicitly modeling the gospel. And that makes you a teacher. So Paul is saying suffering as a teacher And then he goes into these three metaphors, right? Soldier, athlete, and farmer. And first, soldier, verses 3 and 4, says, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Like, what does a soldier do? He fights. He's going to go into battle. He might get hurt. He might get killed. What else does a soldier do? A soldier has a focus. He has this, this focus where he is single-minded and devoted to his duty. He's not a rubbernecker. When a rubbernecker is, you know, like the driver who comes up to the, there's a, something on the side of the road and they slow down because they want to look around at it and make sure they see, okay. Or the ones that slow down on the interstate to like 35 so that they can look at the, the accident. Like, was that a green Prius? You know, like, drives me insane. But a soldier is not a rubbernecker. He has his focus on his commanding officer and his one duty, which is to please his sa- and satisfy his commanding officer. It's to fight for his commanding officer. And Paul is saying here, You can't be a rubbernecker worrying about civilian affairs, which are not bad, but he's using this analogy saying, I want you to remain focused. Your first priority is Jesus. He is your commanding officer. You follow him, not comfort, not ease, not control, not power. Your priority is Jesus. Well, third, you see, he, in verse 5, an athlete. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. He's saying, I want you to compete. 
Like, I want you to work hard. Athletes are determined. They are committed. They work hard and put stress on their body and their minds. I know jocks usually have the, the reputation of just, you know, they're dumb. And it's like, no, as an athlete, you are strategic. Use your body and your mind. You have to be smart because there are times where you need to sprint. There are times where you need to jog. There are times where you need to walk. And there are times where you need to stop and rest. So what Paul's saying is, I want you to be committed and determined and work hard. And I also want you to do it according to the rules. And that means to have self-discipline and self-control. And what that means for us is we must be strong, determined to, f- to compete according to the rules. And what, what he's saying here is according to the rules means, and you're going to have suffering as part of it. If you don't, if you're just trying to avoid it all the time, if you're just trying to escape all the time from hardship, from difficulty of following Jesus, you're not playing by the rules. Because that's part of it. That's part of it. And I think, uh, you know, no one right now in the U.S. can escape suffering. <laughs> the, the pastors get tired of me saying this, but we're in a pandemic. All of us, our lives are affected right now. All of us, for almost a year now, have been under this chronic stress. Our bodies and our minds and our souls have been experiencing the loss of all the different things that we've lost. I've had all this, you know, exhaustion from it. We have all this loneliness. We've missed out on so much. And so what that means is you and I need to be strategic in the way that we compete for Jesus, the way that we follow Jesus, okay? Now, that might mean, that, well, it means that you need to discern where you are. Some of you need to be sprinting. Some of you need to be jogging. Some of you need to be walking. And some of you need to stop and rest. And what that looks like is it might be doing something for your body, like put down the sleeve of Oreos, David, and go for a walk that is much better for your body, physically, okay? Or maybe it's, I'm gonna call my friend and we're gonna have a driveway talk where we sit socially distanced outside with six blankets on because it's cold. And we talk about what happened at the Capitol this week and just our visceral reactions to it. Or maybe it's taking care of our soul where we just say, I need to stop. I need to stop. I need to spend time in prayer. I need to take my emotions to God and let him hear my raw, hurting emotions. We have to be strategic about it. We have to be smart. Lastly, we see suffering as a farmer. In verse 6, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, there are two aspects here. 
hard work and reward, right? A farmer is diligent, he works hard, he puts in all kinds of effort so that he can have a good harvest, so that it's good and plentiful and excellent. So he works hard. But also the tradition is that the farmer would get first dibs, right? The farmer gets first dibs on enjoying the blessing of the crop, enjoying the blessing of the harvest. And we too must be strong by working hard, working hard even in the midst of suffering. But it's not for nothing. It's not for nothing, right? It's not for nothing because you receive the fruit of the Holy Spirit now, because you receive the blessing of Jesus Christ now, because you receive the kingdom of God and are building it with him. And you experience those things now, and we will experience those things forever. So it's not for nothing. Now, if you notice, the next part is verse 7. You know, after verse 6 comes verse 7. And it says, reflect on what I'm saying. He's saying, look, reflect on these priorities. These are intentional things that I picked out. I picked these three metaphors and told you about teaching for a reason. I want you to get those. Pay attention to this so that you can understand it. Pay attention to it. Discern it. I mean, Paul is saying to Timothy, join me in suffering. And one of the main themes of the book is explaining that command. But the other meaning, kind of the other half of the meaning of the book is the reason why. Right? Because when we suffer, we always want to know why and is it worth it? Is it really worth following Jesus? I'm going to have to sacrifice so much. Comfort can't be my idol anymore. Can't be my priority. It's now Jesus, and he calls me to do hard things. And so 2 Timothy is proving to you, yes, it is worth it. It is worth it. Be strong by embracing suffering because you have the power of God, the power of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You have it in you and with you. And here's what I mean. This is where we see it. Paul is doing a wordplay here. In the Greek, now if you don't understand Greek, that's okay. You can read about what he's doing. You can just read about it in a commentary. That's all you gotta do. But he's doing a word play here with the word power. Because back in chapter one, verse eight, he said, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So he's saying, you're gonna do this by the power of God. And then, Right before that, he says in verse 7, the Spirit of God gave us, the Spirit of God that has been given to us is not one of fear, it's one of power. And then the word that he uses in verse 1 of our passage, when he says, you then, my son, be strong, that word be strong, the root word is a verb that's more like have power. Well, have power in what? Be strong in what? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So you see, you have the power of the God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Like that grace is in you. You have that. 
When we're called to be strong, this is one of the reasons we can do it. It's because we have the power of the Father and then the Son and the Spirit. Another thing, I didn't read the rest of, of verse 7 because I wanted to point it out here. Verse 7, it says, reflect on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give you insight into all this. He is going to give you the power to understand the gospel. He is going to give you the power to understand how to live it out. He is going to give you insight on how to be strong and insight on how to embrace and endure suffering in your life. And I wish that he gave the word explanation instead of insight, because I don't know about you, but when, we, when I suffer, the first question is, why is this happening? Why do I have to do this, God? Why do I have to be like this? But God says, Paul says in God's word, I'm, I'm gonna give you insight, I'm not giving you an explanation. But really, his insight is grace and power to go. And he's going to give you the grace and the power to go through the valley, and he's going to go with you. He'll give you the grace and the power, and sometimes it's like overwhelming to think, I'm going to have to suffer like this for so long. And it's like, no, I'm going to give you the insight for today. You don't have to worry about tomorrow yet. Because when tomorrow comes, I'm going to give you insight then. And then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. It's not all at once. It's insights to get you through as you rely on him. If you have power, you have insight. Verse 8, another reason is remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I feel like we talk about resurrection and Jesus being raised from the dead. We don't always think about the specifics of it. Uh, I heard Andrew do this one time. Uh, to think about Jesus' body laying there in the grave, dead, right? Like he's pale-ish and it's gross and he's laying there in the grave. And then all of a sudden, this air comes back into his nose and into his lungs. And he starts to breathe again. And his heartbeat slowly starts to beat again. And the blood starts flowing and the energy starts coming back. And he comes back to life and he sits up and walks out. Like he's raised from the dead and the same power that, was, that breathed life into Jesus is the power that you have from him. The power of the resurrection shows that he has power over death and over sin and over evil. And you have that same power by his grace, godly power, to fight and to compete and to work hard. You have that power. You also see that you have power because of being descended, because Jesus is descended from David. You see that in verse 8. Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Well, what does that mean? Okay, it means... God has the power to fulfill covenants. What does that mean? Okay. 
It means that God is going to fulfill his promises. What he says he's going to do, he will do. And he created a covenant way back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7. He created a covenant with King David and said, One of your ancestors will always be on the throne. One of your ancestors will always be king. And so he's linking it back to the Old Testament. And you see so many times in, in the Gospels how Jesus is part of the lineage of David, how he is the offspring or the ancestor of David. And so Jesus is this descendant. He is this de descendant. And if he's raised from the dead and is this descendant, this is his messianic identity. This is who he is. He's our Messiah. He's our Savior. It's Jesus. And you and I usually see that Jesus has formed a new covenant when we have the Lord's Supper. There's a new covenant, right, where Jesus' body is broken and his blood is shed for you so that you might be washed clean, so that you might be forgiven of your sins, so that you might have the righteous status of a son or daughter before God. I mean, think about that. I think so many times we struggle with shame. And this power is more, it's more powerful than shame. It's more powerful than evil's weapon of shame. Because it's showing you, you are forgiven. You are made right with God. He shows you kindness. And because of that, you can forgive yourself. You can show kindness to yourself by not shaming yourself. That power of Jesus is so important. If the Messiah can forgive and show kindness, then you can show, then you can forgive and show kindness too. Lastly, verse 9, you see that there's power from the word. Paul saying, I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. This is God's word. It has power, right? It's the revelation of who God is, of who we are, and what he has done for us. The, the power of God's word captures our imaginations and it empowers us to live out our part of the story the story of God, of how it ought to have been, but how the way that it is, but the way that it can be through his power and the way that it will one day, someday be by his power. And I like how Paul is kind of playfully but confidently pointing out an illusion here. He's saying, I'm chained like a criminal but God's word isn't chained. He's saying, there's an illusion of power here. There's an illusion that Rome has power over me or that Rome has power over God. The reality is God has power over everything. The illusion of power versus the reality of power. The reality is God's word can never be chained. 
And what that means is you and I have the power of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit in us and with us. You have the insight of the Holy Spirit. You have the power of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. You have the power of God's covenant promises. You have the power over shame. You have power of God's story. You have access to that power. Evil doesn't want you to have that. Evil doesn't want you to understand that. He wants to destroy you. It wants to hurt you. It wants to mar your understanding of God's power. And that's why you and I must chase God's power. And the way that we do this is through his word, through the Lord's Supper, through prayer, through worship, through community, through relationship. He's given us all those things so that we can access his power, so that we can grab it and live our lives the way that he wants us to live with strength. We can walk with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit through those hard places. Ida B. Wells, I'm coming back to her. She was a Christian. She also married a pastor, so she's like strong in another weird way. Uh, She went on to become a journalist, and she had her own newspaper. And it got more popular and more popular. Her words gave power to be strong. Her words gave power to people to speak out against racism and sexism. She got so powerful that the U.S. government put surveillance on her wherever she went. They followed her because they were worried about how much or what what this woman with so much power is going to do. Well, she started this major campaign against lynching, against lynching and the evils of it. And she wrote about this and it began to spread all over the country. And it became such a big campaign that it ended up with her going to the White House in 1898. And if Miss Wells can be that strong through all the suffer, suffering and terror and evil and racism that she saw as a black woman in the 1800s, if Miss Wells can speak out and her words can give that much power to fight against racism and sexism, what do you think the power of God can do? What do you think the power of God can do for you? What do you think the power of God can do for you when you're suffering? Even when you don't want to keep going. Even when you want to give up. Even when you think it's too hard. By his grace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit give us power to be strong. By his grace, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit gives us power not to just endure suffering, 
but to actually embrace it since that's what Jesus did for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is easy for us to become reliant on ourselves and to think that we're alone. And yet we see in 2 Timothy that not only are you with us, but your power is with us. And your power is not just something that we give lip service to. It's something that has changed the world. It's something that created the world. Lord, when we struggle, may we find your power through your means of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.